Hello everyone, welcome to Intimate Animation, brought to you by the online animation magazine Squiggly.com. This series covers animation that takes on adult themes of love, relationships, and sex. So steal yourself as there's some frank discussion ahead. Hi folks, we're back again for a new season of Intimate Animation. That's my enthusiastic new season podcast voice. What do you think of that? It's very loud. Sorry, didn't mean to. <laughs> Slightly scared me. <laughs> okay, so I've cast a pull over the, <laughs> the atmosphere immediately with my over-exuberance. I think it was high time to kick this one off again for no particular reason other than, well, it was Easter Monday and we just thought, screw it, let's just do a new podcast because there was a slight lull in activity. It's I think, April. It's fine. I think with this particular series, it just sort of helps to kind of take breaks with it. Because if we did like an episode of this like every month, we'd kind of run out of films pretty quickly. The winter months are always tricky because there's just not a lot happening. Hmm. Generally, not many films, sort of new films come out of the woodwork. Yeah, and also, you know, it's been a, a, a weird year, obviously, and... Hmm. That's that's definitely increased production of a certain type of film, but I'm not sure if sort of like well observed, quite deep or introspective or compelling films that relate to sexuality and relationships and stuff like that. I don't think it's necessarily been conducive to those sorts of films. Is either films that were already in production before and then were massively delayed, or an awful lot of films about COVID? Yeah, like it's it's the era of the lockdown film, mm. and I've been you know seeing a lot of like festival programmers kind of complaining about that. I mean, I'm doing pre-selection at the moment. I haven't seen that many like really sort of bashed out Mm-mm. lockdown films, but I'm sure so, like some of them definitely you get the impression. It's, I mean, some of them really wear it on its sleeve. This is my COVID film, but certainly I see like lots of programmers going. If I have to see one more like, two-minute film someone made in a month, which I, on one hand, really sort of, like, empathize with, but on the other, as someone who made a two-minute film in, like, a month a couple <laughs> years ago, I, you know, <laughs> I feel a bit self-conscious. I think there's a difference. There's a difference between a film that was made in COVID and a film that's about COVID. Uh, it's definitely an oversaturated genre. I'm done now. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting how immediately sick we get of things, you know, because I remember... Um, they turned it around really quickly, but that film Host, you know, the live action film, it's like a horror film over Zoom, and it was really a good concept. And at the time, it was like, oh, what a great way of taking this situation and creating some really interesting art out of it. And cut to, it's what, nine months later since that film came out, I was just like, I'm just done with, you know, COVID having to fucking inform everything. Like, it's ruined the, the Connors, that, you know, the Roseanne show. Because yeah. every episode is about fucking COVID. And well, like, buckle up, because I don't see that stopping anytime soon. I just, I think that they, there are ways you could write around it, you know? It just oh, feels no, like people are coasting could. on it as... Yeah. No, much you- like we're coasting on it as a thing to write about in the podcast, yeah. so why don't we just fast forward through. So, yeah, I think the last episode of this series went out in October... And uh, that did not seem like it was a long time ago. I'm finding that time is just like absolutely 
it's speeding up in this really exponential way yeah. that like time always gets faster as you get older but it's getting a bit stupid at the like, moment since christmas ev- every month has gone past in like the blink of like a weekend yeah i'm genuinely a little bit scared that it's all of a sudden april i'm like what happened to the last four months yeah and you sort of just con- it's like um watching like a nut person in like a in a thriller film just like trying to put together papers like where did the time go what <laughs> happened what did i do in those four months they're stealing our time they're stealing our time <laughs> and then if like if there was like a video reference- there is no carol in hr <laughs> time has lost all meaning look at the time which is a problem when you work in a time-based medium see <laughs> so, yeah, what has happened since. Again, also, like, time is slowing... But also, a- like, activity is slowing down. Like, the stuff that's coming out, it's not coming out as frequently. Um, we had talked a bit about a new Netflix show in the last episode that was about being a couple in your sort of early 30s. Since then, we've had more Big Mouth on Netflix, which, you know, I guess they really consider it, like, a sort of big deal because they've commissioned a bunch of new seasons. Mm. Um, they're not just doing it sort of year by year. So that's good because I quite like a lot of it. Um, how did you feel about the new season of Big Mouth? I remember liking the first two or three episodes and then feeling like the middle bit got a bit, like, overly bleak. Like, I didn't really... the fir- Like, I've now watched it three or four times all the way through because I obsessively <laughs> watch everything. And so now I quite like it, but there was something about the Nick storyline and just the ble- the hole that that went into. I know it's an adult playing a child, but like just seeing a person's entire sense of self spiral that I found quite harrowing, I guess, for a comedy mm. series. Like it, it really went to a place. Well, it seemed like it, it was kind of, yeah, this existential, like almost quarter life crisis that I suspect nick kroll maybe is drawing upon like his own experience but then kind of prematurely giving it to the version of him that's meant to be what 14 15 years old like 13 and i think that what i found kind of identifiable about it is like i guess what you're referring to is the sort of storyline where he gets sort of taken over by his like fantasy version of himself as an adult Mm. who is a very sort of cold-hearted pushes people away person and i sort of remember like a a very very brief window in my like early 20s where you know i never kind of went through the door but i stepped right up to the threshold of just kind of losing it with people and just being sick of them and it wasn't really anything to do with people it was about the people i was around Mm. and that was a big actual sort of motivator for me kind of just geographically getting the hell out of where I was and it motivated me to, you know, do the master's degree and stuff. And, you know, I, I just moving doesn't necessarily solve an emotional problem, but luckily in this instance, it wasn't really an emotional issue so much as it was an environmental issue. So I kind of related to that, but I don't think the origin of it was the same kind of thing, but I know that feeling of like wanting to be more guarded around people wanting to put up like shields around people and then being kind of suddenly very afraid that you're losing who you are Mm. and when i came to bristol i was able to be who i was again and people weren't i mean people were weirded out by it and plenty of (laughs) plenty of people think i'm fucking insufferable i'm sure but there are enough other people that just got it 
and just and either liked it or they tolerated it or whatever that life became good and i think that maybe that's just happening earlier for kids mm-hmm. like you know cuz I, I mean certainly something that came up when i was part of the mental health panel on visible and visuals a month or two ago um i talked to a few like teachers like mm-hmm. people who i'd worked with in universities and something that came up not just in universities but secondary schools is there is an escalation in self-esteem, I suppose, issues. That's really been more and more of a thing because of the constant like social media kids have. So in a way, it felt a bit like the show was taking on, I think, it was, it was kind of less concerned with the burgeoning sexuality aspect of adolescence and more the burgeoning fear of everything aspect yeah. of adolescence. I mean, the main theme for this series was anxiety. Yeah. It was Jess's doing more of that, what you're saying about, like, judging yourself by other people's perceived... Comparing yourself to other people, yeah. I guess. Where then Andrew suffers with anxiety because he's, he's essentially just having little panic attacks about everything that's going on in the world. Um, although all of this happened outside of the pandemic. Um, so there's no reference of COVID during the series. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure he has that to look forward to. And then Nick is, it's more the anxiety about how he's perceived and who he is as a person, because it's him having made a couple of quite selfish, nearsighted decisions that have effectively ruined his relationships with people. And it's about him choosing, trying to choose to be completely emotionless and what the perils of that is. Yeah. And then having to deal with that, like, put down his ego and apologize for things and also realizing that sometimes an apology isn't enough you have to let there be some time but then there were elements of the earlier ingredients that big mouth was kind of founded on i guess and i I, there was some stuff i really liked like with um jane lola that sort of misfit love element horn dog couple (laughs) (laughs) i think it was more the guy and his mother and her being like sort of in denial about her sexuality. I forget the name of the character. Oh, um, Matthew. Matthew. The mother kind of clutching onto the idea that it would be it would his dad would kick off, and then what actually happens when you know he comes out to his dad? I thought that was really nicely played. I I enjoyed you know a lot of that that story, and I like that character. I think I've also kind of maybe reached the point with the show when it's been a few years, and maybe there's a kind of novelty element that's wearing off a bit or certainly i don't think i've i've i quite took this series in the same way that i took the earlier ones i think i I found myself tuning out maybe a little bit more i think the overall series was far more tonally downbeat like the whole thing as a whole was a lot more sad where they had a little bit more of an ebb and flow in the last series and also although there's obviously a narrative strain that goes all the way for it this one was very nick orientated yeah where in the last series every character essentially had an episode that was more or less about them Mm. with you know the other storyline sort of coming in and out i liked the the stuff with jesse and like the completely mediocre graffiti artist that she sort of gloms onto strong like that was a very powerful thing about like knowing your own limits and setting boundaries and 
it was a bit about peer pressure and it's also really the first time like an actual sexual act has sort of been presented on the show like in the past i think it's been like mostly kissing and a bit of dry humping Mm. but none of them have ever gone like like whatever it is like third base or second base right and that happened twice in this series right yeah okay so there's they're working their way up to things because they're still kind of young yeah they get the impression that they're actually aging up the kids which is unusual yeah in an animated series because there's also that storyline about um nick and um andrew dating the year below them oh yeah so yeah it's unusual to see that as well i also think that as i get older my kind of appetite for you know a new animated show to sink my teeth into is maybe waning or that might just be you know because of the year we've had or whatever but i'm sort of finding that my consumption of television in general is reconfiguring itself and animated show and sitcoms in general i think they're starting to become a bit more like just sort of background noise altogether because the simpsons is on all the time and there was a seemingly new episode of the simpsons but like paying attention to it all the technology in it was like 10 years old it had a lot of people like business with like texting and stuff mm, and no one, one had like, smartphones on flip phones but it, and it was a bad episode but now it's like okay that episode must be at least 11 12 years old so now we've passed the point where we can say the simpsons the old episodes of the simpsons were good because now we're in the point where like the old episodes of the simpsons are bad i think you're referred to them as classic episodes and then the heartbreak of finding out that my niece like had become a fan of the simpsons and then it turns out like she just just completely indiscriminate like it doesn't matter what season she'll just put anyone on randomly and they, she ranks them all equally and i'm just like oh dear god the kids today as far as like other sort of shows that kind of come along there are shows i kind of like to like like i i liked elements of that central park show but it didn't really hook me in and there was a weird show we watched we kind of binged it by the rick and morty guy solar opposites it was called when those ones got going those were quite good i thought like there's a lot of potential there but i don't feel like anyone really knows about it it was really good except i can't remember a single thing from it that's the one with binging i think for me is like i'll 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 watch it like a movie and then sort of forget because too many things happened to to like remember but i remember like elements of it but that one of the things that really kind of stuck out was the very incongruous like overtly sexual moments in it of a show that's ostensibly like alien adventures there's like the headmaster and his teaching assistant and whenever they're behind closed doors he just like buries his face in a rust oh yeah yeah and i think there was like a whole sort of episode about them getting caught in the act or something like that the weird thing is like all you would need to do is remove those elements and maybe a couple of like swear words and you could show that show to 10 year olds yeah. And it's an interesting... I wonder if they felt compelled to keep the Rick and Morty crowd on board or if they were encouraged to, like, make it more adult. Because I don't think it improves the show. It's quite funny. But I think it's just how it comes out of their head, to be honest. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, who are we to, to censor their range of expression? Something else that came out in the... Um, interim months between us uh, finishing off the last series and this one uh, there was a weird article on the guardian about a show in i think denmark mm, yeah yeah denmark called john dillamand 
Yeah, this is an odd one. It's a sort of vaguely controversial, but mostly just very confusing show about a guy who wears like a kind of old-timey striped bathing suit and a sort of curled-up moustache with a retractable hose-length penis. He's like Inspector Gadget, but with one gadget. Yeah, just just one very specific gadget with one very specific function. This was the article about John Dillerman has an extraordinary penis. <laughs> so extraordinary, in fact, that it can perform rescue operations, etch murals, hoist a flag, and even steal ice cream from children. Why would... So, this so, far, this so far doesn't actually seem too differentiated from stuff you'd see on Adult Swim. I feel like it would kind of sit comfortably alongside a lot of those types of shows. But here's the kicker. Uh, the Danish equivalent of the BBC DR has this new animated series aimed at four to eight-year-olds. They know what Willy is, I guess, is the logic. I would suppose so. Um, unsurprisingly, the series has provoked a debate about what good children's television should and should not contain. So... I guess one sort of read of it is that they're a little less inhibited over in Denmark, but it has been kicking up a bit of a fuss. Do we ever see it unsheathed? I know that's, I suppose, maybe how they get away with it. It always sort of extends, but dressed in the same, like, red and white stripes of the bathing costume. So it really is more like just a hose. It could be a tail. It sort of reminds me of, like, one of the sort of earlier running gags in Red Dwarf with the robot was all of his, like, equipment plugged into his, like, where his dick would be. Mm. Because he didn't have a dick that was, like, an electrical suck. So he'd vacuum yeah, out yeah. of his crotch or he'd, like, you know. I think it's that weird cultural thing of sometimes you think it's them being more, like, more liberal and less concerned about this thing. But also, it's actually just them kind of being more innocent and just not thinking like that. There is a kind of weird logic that makes sense to me as to why you would think this. I just wouldn't ever pitch it in the UK because we're a bunch of fuddy-duddies that would definitely say no. Well, so one fuddy-duddy is Danish author Anne-Lisa Maastrand Jorgensen, and her statement on it is, is this really the message we want to send to children while in the middle of a huge hashtag MeToo wave? So I suppose one of the criticisms of it is the timing and perhaps what message it might be. So I do think that the... Does it normalise getting your dick out is that the problem uh, another quote here says it normalizes locker room culture that's used to excuse a lot of bad behavior from men it's meant to be funny so it's seen as harmless but it's not and that was um uh, christian gross from ross guild university Erla heinison hosted a clinical psychologist rebuts john dillerman talks to children and shares their way of thinking and kids do find genitals funny it's a strange one because it's it's. It, I guess it really is all about the delivery. You couldn't show a show like Big Mouth to kids because, as absurd as it is, it isn't absurd enough. And it does talk about sex like no. pretty much constantly, in quite. It talks about mature real ways. sex, yeah. Even when it's like and know, violence, and it's quite aggressive. Taking that stuff out of it, if we were just thinking about like the sexual element of it, I, I do think a show like Big Mouth is okay to present to sort of young teenagers. Yeah. Or people on the cusp of, like, like people in their pre-adolescence, because they're at a point now where they do understand the they realities of anatomy. Are. And 
Whereas a show like this, it's it's so ridiculous, it's so over the top, that it can't really be replicated in any way, unless there's some concern that a kid would try to. I mean, the real issue is that it, it looks like dog shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think arguably the biggest issue with this program is that it's animated as if they've never had eyes or hands. I think they actually animated this with their feet. It's kind of interesting. It It's almost like Shoko's film in the sense that it's kind of like crafted characters on planes, but it's composited in this very uncharming sort of slapped together way. town called Panicky, isn't it? A little bit. A little bit um, it's old that, man cartoon movie. Yeah. But it's, there's something about those shows that do this kind of cheap-looking stop-mo a lot better. It, because it's, it's stop-mo, but it's like they just made assets out of puppets and they've made... And it's very flat. I think the other issue I have conceptually with this is that he has a hand. Just use your hands. I thought the whole thing of it was like he'd use his extendable penis if he didn't have his hands or feet free. His hands are just by his side the whole time. So it does kind of go against the conceit. It's more the question of why bother then. At any rate, had there not been any um, uh, furore around it, I doubt we ever would have heard of it. But thanks to the good people at The Guardian and various other outlets, we can bring it to you via our own sex and animation podcast. So yeah, that was John Dillamond. Maybe it will be gracing CBBS. Maybe not. Aww, we'll see. Time will tell. So we were talking about that before we started recording, and you said it reminded you of a show that you had gotten wind of, which I've just seen is actually has an episode playing in Annecy this year called Monsieur Flaps. And uh, this I have pretty much no knowledge of, other than I guess just the sort of visual concept of it. Which uh, would you like to describe that to our listeners? It is a kind of old-school comic strip-type artwork with very heavy line work of a man who I think is maybe dead, walking backwards, flopped over, and his butthole is an eye, and his bullsack is a mouth, and he's married to a lady. I only able to find French clips of it. There are full episodes, but they're not available outside of France, as far as I can tell. It has a, like you say, it's very old school. It has almost a kind of rhubarb and custody vibe to it. And yeah, like it's it sort of takes a minute to sort of read the image of the character. You so, only really get it when you see him in full with the like the the top half of the man being dragged along. Yeah, yeah, it's like he's kind of it, it, dragging himself along like a corpse. And his actual eyes are, like, X'd out like a dead cartoon character would be. So, yeah, it's one of those things where, like, it's it's too childishly drawn to be like, oh, my goodness, that's shocking. Mm. You know, it, it is, it's mostly just kind of silly. From what I can tell from these clips, there's nothing remotely, like, actually sexual about it, as far as I can tell. No, it's just, like, the one and only video I know of this film, and it was, like, a real thing for a while between me and my friends when I was in university. We just found it one day, and it just just made us laugh. And it's, like, a montage of him dating his his then-wife and his father-in-law being disgusted with the situation and just being constantly, like, upset by his, his young daughter, like, pressing her face into this guy's ass. Right, and so to kiss. I'm just so it goes back a while. Then is that if it was university? That's yeah, yeah. Be. Like it's as far as I'm aware, it's been going for ages. And he was actually there was like this giant inflatable version of him at Annecy 
like a year or so ago and I was really gutted we weren't there for that because I would have loved to have a photo of him. Oh, so it's not in 2017. So, okay, so the MA then? No, no, undergrad. They must have done like a short film before it got turned into a series. Oh. I think maybe the montage I saw was like a short clip reel. It's finally but... having his day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it has an episode in Annecy uh, called Home Sweet Home. The Annecy description. The Flap family returned to Earth after 12 years traveling in space. Their son Felix speaks with his bottom and can't wait to discover his home planet. But the world has changed a lot since they were gone. Oh, so I think it's maybe there was like a season break and now they have a kid. So the son isn't isn't Monsieur Flaps, but no. the son is, is imitating him. We just he it's a cross pollination between the mum and the dad. So I guess he speaks from his butt, but the top of his body is alive. Yeah. Well, there you go. All the mysteries will be uh, resolved if you uh, head to Annecy this year and check it out. So yeah, that's a little uh, glimpse at the. <laughs> the zeitgeist, the landscape of, of sort of sexual themes in animation. I mean, like I say, that one not super sexual other than his balls are out. I feel like time. our podcast has sort of got away from us a little bit. <laughs> Just genitals in cartoons. I don't know if you could call that getting away from us. I think that <laughs> genitals are sort of the anchor on which this podcast is, um, uh, well, anchored, I suppose. It's the beginning, middle, and end of. <laughs> Also at Annecy this year, Annecy have released their full official selection and a couple of films worth mentioning, and I'm sure we'll go into them more as time goes on. Firstly, uh, much, much, much anticipated new film from Joanna Quinn, Affairs of the Art. We've been anticipating it really since, like, the start of being involved in Swiggly. Really? Yeah. Another film that's playing at Annecy. It's a film I've managed to catch elsewhere, and it's worth a shout-out, and um, maybe we'll be able to talk about it more down the line. Uh, it's called In Nature, uh, Dans la Nature, uh, by Marcel Borelli, and not a huge amount to say about that at this juncture, other than it's about the animal kingdom, and sort of exploring all these instances of homosexuality, and occasionally polyamory, and... Um, Things that I think the narrative, when it comes to animal behavior, tends to look away from uh, when presenting it to like children. And this is kind of a children's film that doesn't shy away from that. Is it so that they can perpetuate this idea that homosexuality isn't natural? Whereas, in fact, animals are Often. totally gay for each other. Yeah. Why wouldn't they be? It's quite fascinating how much of it is sort of down to just sort of like social impulses. <laughs> Like how, you know, guys like to, to pal together. Yeah. And uh, what I particularly loved, there's a sequence in it where, uh, what, was a, what was the animal where they have to pee like the female? Oh, goats. The goats. To be accepted by the women uh, if a guy wants to, you know, stray from being with all his, you know, his fellow males, they'll only accept him if he teaches himself to pee like they do. Hmm. That's a nice little film. And so we'll probably circle back around to that one at some point. But yeah, so um, Affairs of the Art, we have coverage of on the site as a two-part interview with Joanna Quinn and Les Mills that Steve put together. So there's lots of information about their work together on that and their work, you know, before that, which is great. It's been, you know, like I say, it's been the coverage that we've been kind of waiting on for 
God, nearly ten years. So um, there's Don't really. Don't make it feel worse. <laughs> well, I mean, hey, if you're going to spend a certain amount of time on a film, the way the film has turned out, yeah, completely justifies. justifies it. It's it's flawless. It's so good. We watched it uh, both with huge smiles on our faces the whole time. We were both sad when it ended. She absolutely knocked it out of the park, and it's a team of really great, um, you know, high-quality animators, uh, many of whom are friends of ours, and that's really a humbling thing to see, like people just coming together and just smashing it, as far as this, you know, the short film animation medium is concerned. So she could have spent 20 years on it. Yeah, for sure. Not really a sort of film about sex and sexuality or relationship. Well, yes, about relationships. I mean, Joanna Quinn's films, and, you know, and they've come up on here before. And, you know, I know that you've done presentations and stuff that have included her films as part of the sort of the world of animation that deals with sex. I think she tells stories in film about life as it comes. Sometimes there's a political edge to her films, but generally I don't think she intends for her films to be seen in any one way she just tells the story she thinks needs to be told and in order to sort of show a well-rounded character and i think that's why beryl in in particular but all of her films have such great characters is that they are actually really well-rounded characters because they do encompass many things not just one thing i think what's particularly nice about this one is the role that life drawing plays in it and Joanna Quinn, you know, she's always, you know, she has the most sort of keen sense, I think, of the human figure and how to really do amazing things with it in animation. She would do life drawing sessions at festivals like, you know, Bradford. And they're always a real treat because you know that, you know, the person who's put it together knows so much about what they're talking about. And uh, I've only ever actually done one, but I came away from it with a lot of stuff to, you know, unpack and apply to sort of future life drawing. And life drawing is so essential, I think, to animation. And any figurative art, really. Yeah. Maybe people don't quite realize it in the process of it, but it just extends to so many areas of draftsmanship and artistry, if you have a good handle of anatomy. As I think, remember, that was that sort of infamous image from a, a show with Harley Quinn, where she's like oh, bending yeah. over, she has two asses. Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a bad day. <laughs> that was a bad day for animation. Like whoever laid that shot yeah, out should be ashamed. I mean, I don't know if they've never seen. I mean, everyone's got an ass. Like you should, you should know that there's you can't have two butt cracks. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's just something that I think if if they had maybe been to a couple of life drawing classes, they might have realized. Oh yeah, maybe um maybe this bit at the top is just back if her butt crack actually starts further down. So yeah, that's fantastic. So of course it was going to get into Annecy, but uh, it'll be doing the rounds. I mean, it's, it's played a bunch of places already. I think it debuted at Clement Ferrand, which is you know one of the the biggest hitters out there as far as festivals go. It's going to be here for a while, so keep your eyes open. On the subject, I suppose of body image and uh, that sort of theme in films, we just came away from the Toronto Animation Arts Festival. Taffy, which was screening my film. This was an interesting one because I hadn't actually checked out their screenings until this year. I had had a film, I think, in last year or the year before. And it was a festival that was always on my radar. Mm. And I think yours as well. 
but it was actually it was really fascinating looking at the actual program and watching the films how much of its own sense of identity it had mm-hmm. compared to other festivals like we see we go to a lot of animation festivals either online or whatever and there's always a significant overlap as far as the films that keep showing up mm. taffy felt like it's entirely contained thing like the types of films that they showed were tonally and even artistically very very different and similar to one another yeah it kind of went to show how i think a lot of other festivals tend to Still automatically show yeah or at the very least they they don't put multiple films of the same tone in one screen yeah i mean it's nice that there are festivals out there that have a very distinct tonal choice and maybe it had something to do with like pre-selection or who was ever curating that year that they just have a very specific idea of what they think a good film is Hmm. and then even the ones that were a little bit more daring were still very visually strong but in a very like accessible I think that's what it was, is that the festival felt very, very accessible. Nothing really challenged you in the screenings we saw. So that being said, I mean, there were a few films that kind of stood out. And one, I think, sort of on the subject of, like, body image, following on from Affairs of the Yard, which I expect is probably going to be in more festivals that we're more familiar with. Uh, There's one called A Little Too Much, and uh, it's by a director called Martina Scarpelli who had a very popular film a couple of years ago called Egg, which uh, won Annecy and played at a whole bunch of festivals. And that was one about, I guess, sort of... It was about eating disorders. Yeah. So this one, it's more of a kind of general thing, I think, about body image, but there's some really satisfying visual mm-hmm. concepts in here. She's a very strong animator and director. And designer. Yeah. Her, her character work is really nice. It's very um, stark. Yeah, she has a very strong sense of style and pacing. So that's one to look out for. Another one that was sort of, um, I suppose, comparatively a bit quaint, but it was an interesting... It it actually kind of won me over a bit by the end of it, because it it seemed like the story or the premise was a bit unsophisticated, and it's about a very large, very insecure woman who has this inability to engage with her sort of across-the-street neighbor who quite clearly is into her. Um, and the film is called Roberto. And the twist in that is actually quite well done, and it sort of goes into issues of body image, more specifically body dysmorphia. So that was one that also kind of stood out, but also kind of felt more representative, again, of the tone of, of this particular festival. It wasn't reinventing the wheel, I suppose. It was well done. High quality films that are perhaps a bit narratively or visually safe. Now, then there was this one, and I forget if this was good or not. Do you remember this one? This one I quite liked. I really did like this one. This was more of a kind of like a a thriller, I guess. And it had a bit of a kind of early noughties Cal art style, is what it reminded me of. Yeah, noughties, I think. Yeah. Is a, yeah. Like a kind of, oh, what's it called? Like Ghost World comic style. Like heavy shading and stark line work. Kind of like a Daniel Klaus, Charles Burns mm. type thing. So yeah, it's called Mantis Love and it's by Baptiste Grezel. And it's about a guy who, a lady friend of his is coming on to him and he deals with it really, really badly. Yes. And so then it becomes a sort of a psychological horror even. Yeah. 
I do like it. It was kind of music video-y as well, wasn't it? Like, it had a very strong, yeah. repetitive soundtrack. So this film is actually online at the moment, I guess. The other one, uh, Roberto, which is directed by Carmen Cordoba, who I don't think I mentioned before. Uh, I don't think he's available online, but there's a bunch of clips and stuff uh, on Vimeo. Uh, the user is Roberto the Short Film, and there's a website, robertotheshortfilm.com as well. It's also worth mentioning that A Little Too Much, the Martina Scarpelli film, is uh, available online. That was a music video as well. So some stuff to maybe check out if you're uh, after something to watch. News-wise, other than uh, strange men from Denmark with long hosepipe cocks, the only thing that has really come up, and I did mention this sort of briefly in the last Squiggly Animation podcast, but there's been a little addendum that's happened uh, in the days since the uh, removal of that uh, lascivious gadabout Pepe Le Pew from the movie Space Jam 2. I think, you know, my opinion of that decision remains the same as it did the other week. Like, I could give less of a shit. But what's sort of interesting is that they've actually since released a trailer. And A, the whole concept of the film, I've, I'm finding a bit baffling. Like, I'm not sure if it's even, like, meant to be a sequel or if it's meant to be, like, like a remake or a reboot. It, do, it just appears to be a completely different, like, concept. But then I didn't really ever know the first film that well, so I don't know. What do you think? I've not seen the trailer. Okay, do you want to watch it quickly? Sure. Welcome to... So, it's... The Space Jam! This whole, like, cinematic universe. Like, of everything that I guess Warner Brothers owns... But that wasn't part of the first one, was it? No. It's odd that they chose to make the new basketball player in the new one go into being a cartoon when he's in their world, because that's not a thing. That didn't happen to Michael Jordan. I remember that much. And then, so then he comes back into a live-action form, and they all now have to look photo-realistic Well, sort of, yeah. Well, in the sense that they have... They just become CG. That's, that's what I mean. Yeah, they're the, three-dimensional. So that's that just seems like a completely different type of film. Mm. What's really different is that it's all characters from different franchises are in the audience, which wasn't part of the other one at all, right? No, not um, that I'm aware, not that I remember. So this is like people from Batman and Scooby-Doo and the Iron Giant. But also not just animated, which is really No, weird. there's like Arnold Schwarzenegger's character in Batman. But then um, the best bit of all, or the most confusing part of all, so it's just right after the title and the credits, and it's this robot thing, you know, bouncing the ball really quickly. And then, sure enough, lo and behold, behind them, it's the fucking Droogs from Clockwork Orange. Is that a KKK member? So what I think what a lot of outlets have rightly picked up on is that just casually in the background, in the wake of removing a character for having vibes of being too strong in his advances, they include this troop of, like, literal, actual rapists. From a Clockwork Orange. From a Clockwork Like, and I gotta say, like, A Clockwork Orange, which is a film I've, I've come around to, and I love Kubrick in general, but I remember that, like, turning point as a young man realizing that I could handle horror mm. and being able to deal with, like, a, you know, probably why I'm so fond of Hellraiser is that was when I realized... It's like, okay, this is actually isn't so bad. And then just kind of going on a bit of a horror binge. And I was fine with... I mean, there were elements of The Exorcist that kind of took me to the limit, but I was actually okay with it just about. 
Clockwork Orange, which isn't even a horror, that was one of the few films where I had to, like, nope the fuck out. Yeah, no, that's I'm not ready for this yet. I'll come back in a few years. Powerfully violent and visceral film. And the scene involving these characters, it's so horrible. Like, it's, you know, with singing in the rain and everything, and it's... It it feels very, but it's not like time has softened them, and they're like, oh, they were edgy in the seventies, but they're quaint now. No, that's pretty fucked up still. I think the um, thing I have the strongest issue with it being in this film is the fact that I really don't think they'd like basketball. Maybe cricket, like polo or the footy. Yeah, <laughs> I bet they'd really bloody love cricket. It's just not their lifestyle, as, as no. canonically established by Anthony f- Burgess just, or Stanley Kubrick. I, I don't feel... Like, and also, they're so front... They're not, like, in the background. They're so front and centre, and they're, like, really into it. I mean, at some point, does Malcolm McDowell show up with a giant ceramic cock and, like, distract Daffy Duck with it? <laughs> like, it's so weird. So I have no, I have no idea what's going on there. No one seems to. But, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people are kind of pointing out the the... I mean, again, I, I I don't think it makes a case like, well, we'll bring Pepe Le Pew back into it. No, it doesn't matter. Like, it, it was, it, it doesn't matter that the character's in it or not, but it just feels like it's contributing to a lot of very arbitrary decisions about what they want the film to be. So we didn't actually go into this in the other podcast, but it makes a bit more sense to talk about it in this one. And it was a detail I'd actually forgotten, uh, was that the scene... He wasn't even going to be in the film that much, but the scene he was going to be in was going to be about him kind of overstepping and getting slapped in the face. And this is um, something I'd read. This is a website called Screen Rant. The scene would have reportedly spoofed Casablanca with Pepe in the role of a bartender that flirts with a woman played by Grace Santo. Pepe's advances turn aggressive. He kisses the arm of the woman without her consent, and she gives him a slap. Pepe later says that Penelope Pussycat has filed a restraining order against him, leading LeBron James to reply that Pepe can't grab other characters without their consent. So the point of the scene was that he's a dated relic. Yeah. You know, um, and then he was removed eventually for being a dated relic. And the point here in this article, it's noted that Santo, who has dealt with sexual harassment, was upset by the decision to cut the scene. Uh, the actress and singer runs a non-profit with the goal of helping victims of domestic violence and points out that Pepe is punished in the scene and that it would have sent a message to younger viewers that Pepe's behavior was unacceptable. Hmm. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd one. It's like, again, it's not one... It's not a race I have any horse in. You know what, The Warner Brothers, I'm pretty sure, also owns The Exorcist. <laughs> so going back to that, I wonder if she's going to show up. Probably. Because that would, that would, because it from, uh, the, the clown from it shows up in the background in one scene. It, it would be, yeah, it would be great if, like, Reagan <laughs> just in full, like, yeah, projectile vomiting crucifix in one hand. It just feels very tired. I mean, we've done that for a long time now, that kind of snake eating its own tail pop culture, referencing other pop culture, referencing other pop culture thing. Yeah. I thought we'd maybe got beyond that, but I guess we haven't. Well, putting that aside, something else that we've been up to recently, we've been doing a bunch of stuff with Cardiff Animation Nights over the lockdown period. We've mainly been doing sort of filmmaker Q&As for some of their online screenings, which is really nice because I don't think that's something they really sort of implemented so much in the live versions, I don't think. Uh, other than when uh, I did the Late Night Work Club, and then we did the live Skyping, remember, with Kirsten Lepore? Oh, yeah. 
But so these these have been more like pre-recorded interviews that we include at the end for people who watch the screenings and want to find out more. And most people tend to stick around for them, which is nice. Mm. And because they're pre-recorded, we can kind of have a bit more. There's a bit more, I think, margin for you know editing them down to sort of concise segments. So that kind of built ultimately to a squiggly screening, which we uh, haven't done in a little while. Usually, I aim to do one of those a year. So I wasn't able to do that with math this year, but we talked about doing it with Can, and then eventually got around to doing it uh, last month. I think it went rather well, don't you? Yeah, it was nice. It went well, and it was a good audience participation throughout. Yeah, it was a nice sort of lively chatter going on. And I think that, you know, us being us, the beauty of us, um, the films were perhaps a little more... They sort of pushed things a little further than usual in a, a kind of animation night. I felt the need to apologize. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm really sorry. Maybe have a think about what you want to watch before you watch, or if you feel uncomfortable, maybe just close your eyes for a while. Well, I told my um, people at work, you know, that, you know, that we had this free screening going on to tune in, and my boss is tuned in, uh, and they're staying with their parents at the moment. Oh, no. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I watched that with my mum. Thanks for that. <laughs> It's a shame because they came in like right at the end of Betty, and probably the the mum would have liked Betty, but uh, so yeah, Betty was one of the films we showed, the new film by Will Anderson, and that's one that we talked about, I think, quite a lot in the last episode of this podcast. It had just screened Encounters, I think, or was just about no, it would have been after Encounters. We both love that film. It's a really nice sort of musing on a relationship that has ended. The only film I've interviewed the director twice about. <laughs> yeah, well, we do have... Uh, we'll probably be able to include a second interview with Will Anderson. There is an article up now if you want to learn more about the film Betty. But the audio from that interview I don't really think would translate to a podcast, I think just because of the circumstances yeah, of how it was recorded. Not, uh, but he did join us for a segment for the uh, screening and so, you know, we did, we put up about five minutes of that, but it's something like a 20 minute interview. So I think down the line, we'll put up the whole thing either as a video or on this podcast or both waste, not what not. And yeah, really interesting. And he, 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 I think because there'd been a couple of months of like reflection, he had some other interesting things to say about it. If any of film deserved two interviews, I would say Betty is <laughs> among them. So uh, look out for that soon. Uh, another film that we showed uh, was a, uh, Slightly older film called Peepin, uh, from Australia by a duo called Hyan and Paul, uh, Hyan Kim and Paul Rhodes. And, uh, the full interview for that, again, we put up a segment on the, uh, at the end of the Cardiff Animation Night screening. The full interview is on Squiggly. If you want to learn more about that film, and the film is online, and it's a film about, uh, school kids in Australia just being kind of horrible to each other. And then it's great. It's like that sort of, you know, you, you're finding like a porno mag in the woods kind of thing and need to like to show your friends and everyone's mind is just blown. But there's something I find always hilarious about a fully grown man voicing a young girl. <laughs> the like sort a, of Bob's Burgers thing. Yeah, a young, aggressively mean girl. I think they, they were people that they had just sort of worked with. Um, they were working on the sort of latest of many versions of Ninja Turtles. And it was like work colleagues who happened to be good at VO or had done some VO. So that's a nice little thing about, like, you know, the indie film. Oh, that was a student film. Like that interview when she's discussing, like, where they got the names that they call each other. Like, they're quite, they're really mean to one another. And, like, 
Yeah, she's like her sister just used to call her really horrible things like man. (laughs) China man and period stain were the two. (laughs) So, like, harsh. (laughs) Like, really harsh and gross and bizarre. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, it brings back, you know, sort of pleasant memories of being in school, but it's really funny. It's kind of absurd borderline kind of abstract in the actual sexual depictions when they come along. They're great fun. So that's online now. And uh, like I say, there was an interview on Squiggly. Hein and Kim, look out for them. And they just signed with Nexus. So uh, I'm sure we'll be seeing more good stuff from them soon. And then we had the film Just a Guy by Shoko Hara. And that's a film that we discussed in the last episode and the episode before in quite a bit of detail. It was just after we'd seen it at Stuttgart. And we've interviewed her in the interim, and the film has done very well. Uh, at the time, it had screened at Stuttgart, and I think was just about to screen at Annecy and Zagreb. It's since screened at Ottawa, and um, Raindance, and Interfilm, and uh, that f- festival you like, Motel X, the horror festival. Because it's a bit horrific. It's not really horror, but it's it's quite dark. It's the subject matter. It's about a serial killer, so... yeah. It's about, uh, to recap uh, a third time, uh, it's about women who uh, are in love with and correspond with Richard Ramirez, or did, because I guess he's dead now. Yeah. So this year it's screened at Clermont Ferrand and Anima in Brussels, which was the last actual like live action event you and me were able to go to, but uh, sadly online this year, but of course it would have had to have been. Uh, Slam Dance also showed it, and uh, it was Oscar long-listed. Didn't get nominated. I think maybe, you know, to assume it would have would be giving the Oscars too much credit. It would have been an odd mix between the two other Disney films. (laughs) Disney film, Disney film, Splooge and Romeris. (laughs) So we discussed that a little bit in the uh, the last episode of the Squiggly Animation podcast. Uh, It's also picked up a bunch of awards recently. It picked up an award at the Ann Arb Festival, and it was briefly online. Uh, during which time it got a Vimeo staff pick. I expect it's gone offline again for the time being while its festival run continues and will presumably be made available later on at some point, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. But in the meantime, as far as keeping up to speed with where it is and what it's doing, there's a Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash justaguy.film. So, like I mentioned, we have interviewed Shokohara since it originally came up. We included some of that interview in the Cardiff screening, but as we have it at our disposal, why don't we hear the whole darn thing? Yes. And uh, you and Shoko got on rather well. Yes. Fantastic. So, let's hear from Shokohara, the director of Just a Guy. Can I ask, maybe first, how did you first come across the women who contacted Ramirez other than yourself? Oh, yeah. Um, I have read the book by Philip Kahlo, The Night Stalker, and he interviewed Richard Ramirez for 100 hours. And it is actually about his criminal career and his trials, but uh, women are mentioned there too by name. So I started to research about these women, and one of them was Eva O, his first girlfriend after he got caught. So... I sent her a message on Facebook and she immediately was interested to talk with me about it. And the second woman, Sarah, I know her since I'm, I was 15. So we both have seen in the same metal scene that time and it was easy to reach her. How did you feel or why did you feel compelled to contact him yourself? 
Oh, yeah, I actually didn't feel compelled to contact him. It was like more um, the contact came through Sarah, the second character. Since we know, we know each other, I knew that she corresponded with Richard Ramirez. So 2011, she asked me to take pictures with her because she knew that he has fetish for feet and for Asian girls. And Sarah describes herself as a death row inmate supporter. So she wanted to make him a favor. And I agreed. And it was more out of curiosity and naivety, I guess. And she printed out the pictures, uh, left a small note like greeting from Germany, like that. And so I wanted to, to please her, I guess, as well. And how long ago was that? Almost 10 years. It was 2011. Okay. And then you received a reply. How did you feel about that? And why did you choose not to contact him again? I was scared because I didn't expect an answer. And uh, Richard Ramirez sent this letter first to Sarah and Sarah gave it to me. And Sarah pushed me to response, but I was too scared because that means that I had to give him my real address. And he might know someone else outside to kidnap me or something like that, <clears throat> like Charles Manson also. Plus, I was also worried uh, that he might lose his interest to Sarah as well. When I keep in touch with him, she told me that she doesn't matter at all. And she wanted me to make him happy. But um, yeah. I did care and I never tried to take away a boyfriend from someone for my own advantage. It's normal, right? And I also, I ha had also a boyfriend back then and he called me sick when I told him about that too. He told me that he doesn't want to be with someone who is in touch with a serial killer. So yeah, I didn't write him. In the film, I, I admire the way you're able to deal with such a difficult subject without sensationalizing it or demonizing anyone involved. It, the film in general must have been quite a difficult, ethical place to be in. Yes, it was really hard to deal with that. During the research and pre-production, I always switched between two sides, the victims and the murderer. And I considered to research in both directions, of course. And I compassionate with the, the relatives of the victims, of course, but I also do understand the women who stand behind the murder somehow. So it was really important for me to not to glorify Richard Ramirez and show the women as authentic as possible without any judgment. And this film is about the women who fell in love with serial killers and not about the crime or the murderer itself. Yeah. Was there any uh, discussions that you had outside of maybe what's presented in the film with the women about their cause for contacting him in the first place? Yeah, yes, of course. I also wanted to understand that too. And I think I understand it now because back then he was really, really handsome. I don't know how you feel about it do you find him handsome or no no <laughs> no I don't think I'd ever be able to separate him from his actions yeah yeah 
Yeah, that's yeah, that's understand too. But he has those aura or this energy. I think he has those bad boy eyes, and he left the crime scenes always with satanic symbols that shows that he is a dangerous guy. And in the eighties and nineties, rock and metal was very popular for young people. I think it fits more like contacting a celebrity, a rock star, because he really looked like a rock star and has an evil, real evil soul. And getting an attention from someone who is in the mass media and uh, allegiant. Additionally, Sarah is sexual and submissive. So she wanted to have someone who tells her what to do and controls her. She didn't buy those role plays with normal guys. So she chose Richard Ramirez to get that real thrill. And do you think from your discussions with Sarah and Eva, you've come to any conclusion as to why women in general who are compelled to contact kind of extreme kinds of criminals do so? Yeah, I figured out that uh, it's a control thing. These women have these dangerous murders behind bars under control and they cannot escape, they cannot have sex with other women. You always know where they are, you feel more secure about him or your, your relationship. And since the inmates have a lot of time and always bored, they appreciate any kind of attention they get and they always answer your letters. The contact time is really limited, so you try, you both try to spend Time with your lover as intense as possible with a lot of communication and I think this kind of connection develops too when you would care of your relationship like that too outside but this doesn't happen that often because people are too distracted and with a lover behind bars you have a real feeling of exclusivity I guess. Did you ever contact anyone other than Ramirez? No, I didn't. So, like we were saying, it's quite difficult to separate him from what he is known for, especially if that's part of the enjoyment or part of the excitement of the uh, of the interaction. How aware of, or like, how much did you know about all his various crimes before you contacted him? And then, how much research did you do for the film? after and how did you handle that knowledge when producing the film yeah um when i received the letter i only knew how he looked like and few facts from wikipedia and since uh, since he looked old i mean he was around 50 and i was 21 i didn't find him attractive at all so yeah that's it before at that time but so when i decided to make a film about it i researched a lot i watched a lot of documentaries about him and read a lot about him and i also tried to contact his niece and his other girlfriends but i really got him know through the many original letters eva all brought from california to germany when i interviewed her and I figured out that he's not that evil like all these medias described him. He acted like he's a dangerous sadness because of the publicity. Um, he was more a wannabe rock star, evil, I guess. And I figured out that he's not that smart as he looks like. He was not well educated, which turned me off. 
and actually uh, yeah he was actually a poor lonely guy with almost normal feelings um he cried even for example when eva left or when he missed her and he loved her a lot i felt uh, but when it comes to his crimes he didn't have any regrets or compassion so i tried to show those sides of him in my film too i think it's quite interesting from from both the film and then doing some other research about him and also seeing some of the letters that eva let you photograph it was almost as if he was still a teenager even yeah. like much later on and he was clearly quite emotionally stunted and yeah. had had a very odd upbringing that yeah. didn't equate with horrific crimes and how that was wrong yeah yeah like he had a very weirdly twisted moral system yes exactly yeah so why did you want to make the film about both your own and these other women's affiliation with him yeah even though i don't have that much to tell about him like other women because i didn't have a relationship with him it was only a letter but i wanted to include myself to the film to create a dialogue with the protagonist but i also wanted to show the different intentions for contacting a serial killer for eva it was a real love for sarah it was more for her sexual benefit and for me it was more out of curiosity and naivety so before people put a label on all women who contacted him we have to differentiate it i guess you also tried to contact Doreen who was the woman that eventually married him did you ever find out why she didn't want to be involved in the film yeah oh doreen <laughs> yeah that that's uh, another story um but uh, i really enjoyed to um tell you that um i actually wanted to make a film only about her and her uh, their marriage and my producer stefan and me we tried so hard to reach her and i paid an online private investigator to figure out her contact addresses and relatives and stuff i texted her nephew and her twin sister on facebook and instagram and uh, her twin sister blocked me on facebook without saying anything stefan wanted to visit her in the us to give her my request letter in person but all these addresses were wrong so i found her on facebook finally but she didn't answer Mm-hmm. and i figured out who is her good friend or maybe a boyfriend i'm not sure so i texted that person and i think he told her that and after that she blocked me and said yeah please stop uh, trying contact me and i think she doesn't want to have anything to do with that topic since she got a lot of shit storms in past and lost family and friends because of that mm-hmm. she grew up in a very catholic family and um i think she is living now her anonymous lonely life somewhere with a new face and i wanted to give her the opportunity to share her own story and view about any judgment but she doesn't want it and yeah i had to accept it yeah it's understandable but it's still intriguing as to why yes right and how did you feel and how did the other woman that you you did have contact with feel when he passed away because that's not something you address in the film that much yeah i mean um it was 2013 and i just read it um 
because Sarah shared it on Facebook and she was very sad about it, of course. But at that moment, I didn't feel sad, to be honest. So today I am relieved, more relieved that he is dead because otherwise I would be still scared and wouldn't have made a film about him. It's interesting because um, I, I feel the same way about even interviewing you if he's still been alive. I'm like, I'm just not going to touch this. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, he had he was friends with Satan, so I don't really want to. I want to push that. <laughs> yeah, okay, but I think he was more a uh, uh, wannabe Satanist. So it was yeah. very uh, the eighties. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> In the film, I saw that you actually got a lock from Sanquento's death row. How did you come across that object, and do you still have it? Uh, this I used only for the trailer, for the funding application, I guess. It, so it is not in the final film anymore, right? You made mm -hmm. that one. Yeah. But of, of course, I wanted to know how the environment in Orange County and uh, San Quentin death row looked like back then. So I researched and I bought it from a collector in the US for $50, I guess. And yes, I still have it. Wow. What do you use it for? Nothing, just stands there. <laughs> Paperweight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of that. You had quite a reasonable sized team that you worked with on this. Could you tell me a bit about what roles I was played in the film and how this benefited both you as a director and like the overall production? Yeah, they all benefited me and the production. Um, every single team member believed in this project from the beginning and they worked with passion. Um, which was very important for me. Uh, but first, Stefan, the producer, he had so many sleepless nights because of me. Because I wanted to have all these archive materials, which was almost impossible to, to uh, reach the license owner or to pay. Um, yeah, but somehow he made it, and I really appreciate it. Mm. And um, I'm also glad to have Elliot um, as a puppet builder and animator. He's very talented and fast. And also Valentin, um, the anima he animated the most part of the claymations. Um, he was very patient and open-minded whenever I had new ideas or changes spontaneously. And we three lock locked us up for a few months in a basement during the production. And yeah, we got to know each other very well and we had a great time together. And oh, and that, was that to get into the headspace of Ramirez? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, kind of. We, we listen a lot of true crime podcasts and stuff. Yeah, yeah, we are, we are very into that at that time. And yeah, and I want to mention also Chiara. She's the composer and was involved in this project from the very beginning. And I knew that Chiara has such a very good sense of feelings and she is very talented to express all this atmosphere I wanted to have and I'm not that good at describing music but she felt exactly the same what I felt so she's the yeah, sunshine and such a positive person and this is also important too I guess maybe the most important thing when you work with someone and with Mark, the sound designer, and Louis, the Foley artist, I always um, work whenever it is possible. So we are well-established team 
that they are always creative and suggest different things and they know what I want. So a detailed briefing was necessary. I just trust them always and they just do. Yeah. <laughs> it's what you want. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you yourself are uh, a very talented animator and very well educated and your team created some really spectacular shots of the film. Could you tell me a little bit about like the production in general and what kind of resources you had to make the film? You mean the environment, the, the materials? The materials and maybe like the production in terms of like not cost exactly, but like how you came to have the money to make the film basically. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Thank you first uh, for this nice compliment. This uh, credit for the puppet goes to Elliot, um, of course. And yeah, for all I did for the puppet animations was a detailed briefing with a big mood board and visual concepts. And um, we got uh, two fundings. Um, first, the Baden-Württemberg funding uh, was 80,000 euro. And uh, a second German funding, film funding, was 15,000 euro. So in total, we had 95,000 euro to spend from money we could always pay the team and the materials and um yeah it was helpful of course but um as i said also the the archive materials um were so expensive really expensive i really didn't expect it but yeah somehow we made it <laughs> and i knew that a few team members they worked also for low budget so I really appreciate that, that passion, yeah. And on that idea, what was the kind of aesthetic approach? Because it obviously uses quite a lot of mix. It uses a bit of collage, it uses archive footage, and then it has this very um, almost aggressive style of plasticine animation. First of all, I'm a huge fan of David Lynch. I was inspired by his collages and assemblages. Um, they have something dark, and dirty and ugly what I like and so if someone knows David Lynch in person please let me know <laughs> because I'm such a fangirl and I really would like to meet him one day so this is my dream but anyways just copying a style is not an option for me and I didn't want to make a, a dark film because Just a Guy is actually about love and I expect always to de develop a unique style and my approach to the film was to combine past and present styles with something new or complete opposite, which has to be related to my topic. That makes sense. The film feels perhaps more like an, an essay film with like documentary elements, but your films often are rooted in a kind of real situations and fact. What attracts you to making work based on real events and people? Yeah, because... I didn't study script writing or film directing, so I'm not a good storyteller or cannot make up an exciting story, I would say. <laughs> I think the, the reality is crazier and raw than I can imagine. And um, I'm interested in weird subcultures or fringe groups. They usually don't get that much attention they actually deserve. And in daily life, I'm also such a gossip girl. Whenever I experience or hear something crazy or weird, I always have to share it with someone. And making film is the best way to share a story, I guess. A real story. I'd agree. <laughs> <laughs> How have you found the response in general to the film? 
I really, I really didn't expect so many positive responses and even an award at Krakow Film Festival. Mm -hmm. And I hoped uh, to get in touch with the audience in person to talk about the things we talk about now, we both. So I'm really grateful to have this opportunity to share more about the film uh, through Squiggly. Uh, so thank you, Laura. <laughs> okay. And yes, so and others like on Facebook or Instagram, people uh, texting me or likes. <laughs> yeah. And what's the plan for the film moving forward? And are you working on anything else currently or is it just focused on continuing to send the film out? Yeah, uh, um, even though the film was funded, it was still low budget, I told you, and intense. And I think I need to earn money first with my motion design works for commissioned films. Um, but I'm thinking about a few topics, but none of them are interesting enough yet. And after this kind of success, I feel a bit under pressure to make a further film, that the next film has to be better than this one. So... Let's see, as nothing concrete yet. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Shoko Hara, the director of Just a Guy. And as I mentioned before, you can keep up to date with updates about the film at the Facebook page, justaguy.film. It's also on Instagram, again, justaguy.film. Uh, you can find it there. Lots of great updates on there and uh, behind the scenes, little uh, tidbits and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, check it out. It's educational. <laughs> what really sort of struck me about that, because I think the first time I, I brought it up after seeing it at Stuttgart, and I talked quite a lot about like the sort of stark ugliness of it, mm. and it had felt really familiar, and I, I, I'm amazed that I didn't pick up on this, but as soon as she brings it up in the interview, it makes perfect sense. It's David Lynch. It's his paintings, mm. and yeah, the color stuff, and some of his early short films, like... And I'm surprised because I was obsessive over those and I, you know, I've been spending this weekend backing up all sorts of like old files from university and even before then. And I actually found my dissertation on Lynch and it's all that, all of his like old short films are in there in the appendix. Stuff like Six Figures Getting Sick and uh, The Alphabet, which I think you might be able to find online. But, uh, and also, you know, there's his paintings and stuff. They're very kind of layered and tactile and combine materials in a really kind of grotesque way and yeah very very similar kind of vibe with her work so uh, i slapped myself on the wrist for not picking up on that before but yeah really nice interview really interesting she's a very cool lady i think you'd have to be really to kind of take on this sort of subject matter and keep your head about you so yeah you can also find her on instagram at konnichiwa underscore shoko and her studio website is uki-uki.de if you want to see some of her other projects Right on. I think that wraps it for our first episode of Intimate Animation Season 4. Goodness me. I'm kind of actively trying to find more academic takes on the themes that we sort of look at in this podcast. So things to do with like relationships of an intimate nature, eroticism, erotica, sexuality, and sex, and body image. And I'm struggling to find academic writings on that subject um obviously we we know the jane pilling book the papers she sort of references in that but if anyone knows of any really good papers or anything they think i should read on that kind of subject area because i'm preparing for like some academic work in this kind of area 
if you could send an email to us at squiggly that would be great just with like sex laura in the title <laughs> just because that would make me personally happy well, send it to me like ben at yeah. squiggly.co.uk or, or find my email address like my email address is out there for everyone it's lbyellow at hotmail.co.uk right yes well you're on twitter as well at lb kelly yes, or, or tweet me or instagram message me or any i'm everywhere i'm very available at all times so yeah something to um I know that there is more of a, maybe an academic contingent among the listeners of this podcast. So if that brings anything to mind, mm. shoot us a missive if um, you can think of anything like that. In the meantime, I've been Ben Mitchell at Ben L. Mitchell on the Twitter. And Laura Beth Cowley can be found, as I mentioned before, at LB Cowley on Twitter. Squiggly is at Squiggly. Of course, the website is squiggly.com. If you haven't subscribed to these podcasts, for the love of God, do it. Don't deny yourself, you fool. We'll be back soon with Intimate Animation Season 4, Episode 2. I, I promise you. Until then, everyone, happy intimate animating. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.